place it comfortably. So, second day of session. I think we're all settled in by now. To give this title a talk, it's called Yes and No. And the beginning of it is uh, a lovely koan, which is one of my favourite koans in the koan collection. And I think it comes under the title Alive or Dead. And it's rather irreverent, as you will come to see. And, um, and it's an interesting koan in terms of the content of it. And it's also an interesting koan in terms of the, mm, what we might say, the, the interpersonal dynamics of it as well. Um, but the, uh, the story is that uh, a Zen teacher and one of his um, senior students, someone who was quite experienced in practice, um, were in a village one day and a funeral procession came by and the coffin came by and when the coffin came by the two monks, the, um, the, uh, the, the, the senior monk rapped on the coffin as it was going by and said to his teacher, alive or dead? Uh-huh. How outrageous, right? The seriousness of a funeral. Alive or dead? And the teacher said, <coughs> I don't say alive and I don't say dead. Mm-hmm. And the monk pressed him further, you know, do you say alive or dead? He said, I don't say alive and I don't say dead. And the monk said, got annoyed, he said, why won't you say, why won't you say? He said, I won't say alive and I won't say dead. Uh-huh. And then this went on for a while to the monk got really annoyed with his teacher and he said, if you don't answer, I'll hit you. (laughs) And the the teacher said, I don't say alive and I don't say dead. And the monk hit him. And uh, then what happened is the monk left the teacher. He's obviously going through um, some uh, crisis here of some kind, um, which came to a head with the coffin. He needed some kind of response or certainty to put his mind at ease but the teacher wasn't going to help him out in any superficial kind of way. So anyway, the senior monk left the teacher and left the monastery and he went out to a little uh, uh, village by himself and sat for quite a number of years just gardening and doing a bit of practice on his own in a hermitage. And one day I forget, I don't think it says in the column what he was particularly doing, he was just gardening or something. Somehow there was some clarity came to him and uh, he appreciated the teacher's response to him and he stopped what he was doing and he bowed nine times in the teacher's direction as a, as a gesture of gratitude to his response. So he wouldn't say yes and he wouldn't say no. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever come across this as a koan, um, that would be most interesting. Because <laughs> of course, if we look at it sort of more intellectually, in a literal sense, the body in the coffin is dead. Right? But in a Dharma sense, from an absolute point of view, um, all human beings are just the recycled compost of everything that went before. 
and will become the recycled compost of everything that comes after us. And in a sense, life never dies. Mm -hmm. So is that corpse in there alive or dead? I don't say dead, and I don't say alive. It actually came to life um, some years ago in Hawaii. Um, Robert Aitken, who was my first teacher, his wife was Anne Aitken, who was also a, you know, a serious Zen student. And uh, she died before Robert Aitken, and they had a funeral ceremony and everything at, um, at the uh, Zendo there in Hawaii. And at the funeral ceremony, one of Aitken Roshi's Dharma successes said, um, Anne Aitken is completely alive. And then another Dharma successor got up and said, no, you're wrong, Anne Aitken is completely dead. Uh -huh. So who are you going to believe? Maybe none of them. Uh -huh. Also, we come across this um, yes and no in the first koan that we work in in the koan series, the koan mu. Um, a monk asks Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And Joshu replies, mu, which in Chinese means no. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes the koan. But what's not less well known is on another occasion when he was asked the same question, he said, yes, the dog does have Buddha nature. So then you've got a yes again, and you've got a no to the same question. Mm -hmm. But if Joshu had said yes, and that was the one that became well known, um, he wouldn't have had as much, his response would have, wouldn't have had as much power in it. There was actually more power in saying no. It set up a barrier so that the monk and you and I need to get beyond yes and no. And when you go to the poem in the koan on Mu, it says, a little bit of has or a little bit of has not. Body is lost, life is lost. You think you have Buddha nature, you're lost. If you don't think you have Buddha nature, you're lost. So what's all this mumbo-jumbo leading to? Uh -huh. What are these Zen teachers trying to teach us? Mm -hmm. Something very important. Now, closer to home, in my own profession, um, on the issue of yes and no, I ran a workshop once for um, other um, couple therapists, and one of the little experiential exercises in the workshop was to get people into pairs, and each person would have an um, experience of saying yes over and over again to the other person as they looked them in the eye and said it with you know, generosity and so on. So they both had, a, had an experience of doing that, taking turns. And then they both had an experience of saying no to each other over and over again. And then we explored, everyone sort of shared what their their inner responses were to the yes and the no. And nearly everyone said, when, when someone kept saying yes to me, it was like an expansive type of feeling. And when they, when they said no, it was like a contracting kind of feeling. Like, so we, we all like to be said yes to in some kind of way. 
And um, however, to say yes to something uh, is an act of, often an act of generosity and open-heartedness. That's the kind of spirit behind it. But to say no to something or to someone um, may also be a good thing in that it has wisdom behind it and it has courage behind it. Mm-hmm. So both have their position. Mm-hmm. But what happens, we can tend to get into human beings, all human beings tend to get into habit patterns which have then become fixed positions and they can become character traits, you know, so that we have a tendency then to nearly always say yes to something or to someone, you know, always agree, you know, always affirm. Um, Maybe people-pleasing, over-compliant, because it's a fixed pattern. And on the other hand, we may get into a rigid habit pattern of being oppositional. You know, and whenever anyone says something, no, 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 no. And so that's another rigid position as well. And imagine what what a hell it would be if you were completely locked into saying yes all the time, right? Or completely locked into saying no all the time. Mm -hmm. What if you had to say yes to your partner all the time? What would that be like, Diana? Be hell, wouldn't it? So there's a there's a rigidity that can come into the way we actually relate to the world, and one of the outcomes of doing Zen practice or other practices as well is that habit patterns and rigidity start to fall away. Right. So just instead of having this knee-jerk reaction to how we respond to things in our life. We see the situation uniquely and, and something intuitively comes through. We pause, we come through and we tend to say yes or no more appropriately to the situations that arise in our life. So that's one of the outcomes that can, can happen with practice. Um, when it comes to being definitely yes or definitely no on just about any matter in human experience, um, there's really not much can talk about that we have absolute knowledge over. Mm-hmm. It's all a bit grey, except maybe for a few mathematical truths out there, you know, like that the number of odd numbers is c- completely equal to the number of even numbers, things like that, right? But in the, human, the realm of human endeavour, you know, philosophers have been looking at this over years. There's not a lot that we can feel absolutely sure on, and uh, which challenges idea, our ideas of fixed opinions on things, whatever they might be. One of the one of the positions that people often overlook in everyday life when asked for an opinion on something or wanting to give an opinion of something, you could say yes to it or no to it, but a lot of people don't actually pause and stop and go, well, actually, I don't have an opinion, or I don't know, or I'm reflecting on it. It's like we're, we're driven to have to have an opinion on everything. You know, when often being in a cloud of unknowing and, and, and being unsure, you know, 
and having some doubt there as to the absolute nature of it is a useful thing to have. Years ago, I went to a, a talk given by a, a Catholic priest. It's, it's a long time ago now and I can't remember his name, but he was, he was very well known um, international figure at the time. And the talk he gave in Sydney, he was a Catholic priest, but he said, in his view, the true position of Christianity in terms of believing in God was actually agnosticism. Right? To, be, to ab be absolutely sure there's a God was not in the spirit he thought of a true Christianity. It's like, I don't know. You live in that cloud of unknowing. The cloud of unknowing is actually um, a well-known 16th century um, Christian book on prayer, on contemplative prayer, how to do it and, and what the context is. And, and the cloud of unknowing sums up exactly uh, what the relationship is to God. Mm -hmm. We live in a cloud of unknowing. In Zen we talk about the hazy moon of enlightenment. The moon is kind of like the absolute principle and the clouds are the relative and the moon shines through the clouds. But in Zen what we call a, the awakened life or enlightenment is like the hazy cloud. Enlightenment. It's not like an absolute full bright, clear mind on a, on a clear sky. It's always filtered through the relativity of everyday life. And this brings me to what is the essential point of doing session, particularly. I mean, uh, of course, everyday life as well. But in session, we've got this opportunity to not um, have to be involved in discussion and opinions and intellectual debate or anything like that, working anything out. We're, all, we're just free for a week just to sit and be present to what is. You know? And by doing that, what we're doing is that we're getting in touch with what we refer to in Zen practice as suchness. Just the suchness of life. The suchness is just life as it is. Not our assumptions or qualities or characteristics that we project onto it, you know, whether, whether the hot is good or bad or the cold is good or bad or whatever. We get beyond those concepts of right or wrong, good or bad, yes and no, and it's our practice just to see things as they are. Let them speak to us as they are. And that is, that is the practice of, of practising looking into emptiness. Emptiness is the same as suchness. People get confused by the word. But to be empty is to be empty of projections that we're projecting onto life, the judgments we're making about it. So that, that's, our, um, that's our essential task during session, is to let all of that intellectualization go and just to turn up each moment to experience the suchness of life as it is without any conceptual overlay. There will always be a little bit in the background there but we put it to the wings. You know? We're so caught up in it. Um, don't forget that. That's what our challenge is here over and over each moment, um, each day. 
it's a great opportunity to do that, even more so than, than um, regular daily practice. We've just got an extended period of time to actually touch base with that aspect of life. And in Zen terms, to give it a word, it's called the absolute. The absolute's not like an absolute doctrine or principle. It's not to do with language. In the Zen sense, things just as they are is the absolute. And it's always been the essential practice of Zen, of, of any, any Zen teaching, any, any true um, Zen group, to focus in on that experience. You know? So it then flavours everything you do in your life. Now, what you will always read in the Zen books as well is you can't get stuck there. You know? you, the fact is you can touch base with that suchness in life and just see things as they are. But if you are to be a human being acting in the life and working and being in relationships and being social and so on, it requires making decisions, it means having opinions, it means making judgments and assessments and acting accordingly. So you've got to bring that absolute background back into everyday experience. You just can't stay stuck there. A lot of people want to stay stuck there, but all the Zen teachers will pull the rug out of people who want to stay there. It's not enough. You're not complete. You haven't finished. If that's the place you want to stay at. So it's very important we recognise that that is, that is the main focus of what we're doing here and then we need to integrate it back into our everyday life. The moon shining through the clouds. Beautiful metaphor. And the nature of all this stuff, just talking about the absolute and the relative, um, the linear thinking mind can't grasp it because the linear mind thinks in black and white. It's either, things are either absolute or they're relative. And it's like a computer. The, the predominant left side of the brain, as they talk about in neuroscience. That's all it, get, that's all it gets is right, right, left, right, wrong, yes, no. Mm -hmm. And that's why in Zen Buddhism in particular, as a, as a school of Buddhism, it mainly uses the language of paradox and metaphor to describe what Dharma practices are like, is like. Because in paradox, particularly in metaphor, in a metaphor you can, you can hold two opposite things together. Mm -hmm. In linear thinking it's very hard to do that. And as soon as you can, if you start to read Zen literature and you can start to read it as metaphor and as paradox and not, not let your linear thinking brain interfere in the process, you'll start to get it. At an intellectual level at least you'll start to get it and, and it'll speak to you more in terms of how to actually implement this practice into your life. So the absolute is the relative, the relative is the absolute. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the the linear mind doesn't get it, hasn't got a clue, mm -hmm. can't figure it out. But that is the nature of practice. And if you put it in, well, to put two things together, when they do 
neurological studies, say on birds, they find that one, one, a bird's uh, left side of its brain is wide up to its right eye so that when it's looking for food it can look specifically at what's right there and peck at it. And then its right side of its brain is wide up to its left eye which is looking out at the environment and keeping an eye on the environment for predators, etc. And so one eye is wide up for the big picture and one eye is wide up for the little picture. And in a sense that's how our human brains work as well, if we allow it to, is that one side is, is, is wide up to see the universal right? and one part is wide up to see the specific or the absolute and the relative. And if we get them both working together in harmony, then that, that's the optimum way in which a human brain can work and interact with its environment. But the way we're going, it's sort of like we're over-focused on the particulars. We don't, we don't see the universal behind the particulars. We're just preoccupied with me, mine, this, this right in front of me. And so that's the other thing that happens in Zen practice in a session. You get a chance to see a bigger picture, you know, the, more, the more universal picture. We're all, we're all narrowed in by what um, one uh, uh, Zen practitioner, um, James Austin, who wrote a book on Zen and the brain, we're, we're narrowed in on the I, me, mine, those particulars that are I, me, mine, focused around me. In session, we get a chance to loosen that and go beyond that into something which is much faster than that. So when we bring all this down to everyday life um, and we bring the absolute into the relative, we need to have opinions to get by in the world. We need to make assessments and judgments. But when you've got that background of being grounded in suchness and having a bigger picture, then it takes the self-righteousness out of the opinions. Mm-hmm. takes the self out of it. You still have the opinion, but it takes the self out of it. Just like with thoughts and emotions, you know, we talk about how in Zen you can over-identify with your emotions so you think you are the anger or you think you are the thought. And as you practice, you get to see, well, I'm experiencing an emotion and I experience a thought, but it doesn't define me. Well, with more broader expanded opinions, it becomes the same. We have opinions but we hold them lightly and it takes the them and us out of it and the self-righteousness out of it. Um, Now, in Buddhism, of course, we hear about right view, right? In the Eightfold Noble Path, right view, right speech. It's not actually a very good translation and a better translation would be wise speech or skillful speech or skillful view. But D.T. Suzuki, who was one of the first um, uh, Zen teachers from Japan to come to the West and teach, when he was asked about, when he taught about the um, Four Noble Truths and right speech and so on, he said that, well, right view, he said right view is no fixed view. That's what right view is, no fixed view. Mm-hmm. As soon as you're fixed, as soon as you've got a rigid position, you, you're gone. 
You're not going to respond to what's in front of you. You're not going to play what's in front of you. You're gone. You've got an expectation that you're projecting onto life. So that's what loosens up with practice. No, no fixed view. So something, something more intuitive, some intuitive wisdom and compassion can come forward to this moment as it presents itself. Open mind. So to, to finish with, um, uh, there's a book I um, read recently that I bought on the Isle of Skye when Dana and I went there recently called Memory in Straw. And it's a, a, a lovely book which um, poetically captures a lot of um, old folk wisdom. And one of the things that really caught my eye, and I underlined it, um, is that one of the old Scottish men says, don't trust anyone who thinks he's right. 